had, I had no idea we were being recorded. I mean, no who would have thought? I sat down, I put on these headphones, I set up this this whole sound system and everything, and yeah. I never would have expected that, these that are this really was nice. going to be recorded. So these, you, these work. You use this for the fancier radio station than us? No, um, this was this was one that I got, and um, I was I was having some trouble with it. I think I've now figured out the right the right setting. I think it sounds pretty good right now for mm -hmm. us, right? And uh, yeah. so we're getting some good levels. Uh, and then I I was able to find another one on sale. One of those really like good ones. Oh, I found one of those mics on sale, so I was like, I'm I'm just gonna buy it. And so I started using that, uh, but then when my microphone broke last week. I was like, well, it's a good thing I've got this other one lying around as an extra. And then I thought I should get another one for Paula as a, as a special <laughs> gift so that we can match. And so that we're using, we're using similar equipment here. Cause the other one, that, that, that set was really good. Was really it is helpful. nice. Yeah. Um, it was just hard to maneuver. Yeah. This is, this is a little bit easier. Yeah. This so, is nice. Yeah. I like this. So do you remember last week how I told you that I was having trouble waking up Waking up, okay. Because of the alarm not going off in the zoo in the snooze issue that I had. No. I didn't say this. No, you didn't tell me about oh, this. Oh well, I had the most disastrous week last. If week. you did, we can go back to the recording and find out that I have a terrible memory. Um, but well, I, don't, I also I don't have a terrible memory, so I don't know if I, I told I you, but I complained it to no. a couple people, but I tell, don't know if it was you. Tell me about your snooze problem. So the issue is, I would set my alarm, and I've been trying to wake up at five or five thirty. So it would go off, and then I would just hit snooze. Yeah. Then I would wake up two and a half hours later. Because the snooze had no sound to it. It happened every day. I didn't have any backup alarms. And then it took me like five days to realize something is wrong here. Because at one point I woke up and I saw the snooze. It was going, but there was no sound. Hmm. I was like, what is, what is That's going? That's interesting. So I went to the interwebs. And I thought with updating my phone to the new 16, like iOS, it would just fix it. Right. It did not. It didn't. Huh. So there I go, waking up three hours later than I intended to, because uh, I can sleep. Okay. If need be. Uh, I think that the solution to that is not a, a button. It's not a second alarm. It's, yeah. It's Saint Jose Maria Escriva, the heroic minute. Oh well, you know what? Are you familiar with the heroic minute? I am familiar with the heroic minute. So the heroic minute. I don't really like it. <laughs> the heroic minute for anybody who, uh, any of our tens of listeners who might not have heard of the heroic minute. The mm -hmm. heroic minute means that when the alarm goes off, get up. Do you do that? Like, do you yeah. snooze? No. You don't snooze? No. Wow. Heroic minute. Alarm goes off. Uh, get up. Pray. Mm. In that minute. Right? Maybe Just God was telling give, me. Give the day to God. Um, some days, I'm not going to lie, it's not as heroic a minute as, as it could be. Some days it's more like, ugh. And I just kind of force myself to get up, and there's not much of the giving it to God and, and glorifying <laughs> the Lord for, for giving me this other day. It's more like, why? Why is it time for me to get up? Why? Other days, though, it's just, it's, it's, but the heroic minute, that's the, that's the well, solution to, to breaking your snooze button habit. I actually, or the other thing you could do is set your alarm even earlier. Yeah. So that it goes off, and then you can give yourself the snooze, and then you have the second alarm that goes off at the regular time. Yeah. And that way you don't feel like you need to snooze. You trick yourself into not needing to snooze. Mm. Interesting. Well, I did fix my snooze problem. Oh, you did? Okay. I did. I just had to delete the original one and create a whole new sleep alarm Okay. through the sleep app. Through That's the sleep it... app? Yeah. There's a sleep app? Yeah, like on your phone, under your health. You I, can like. You I can... didn't know that. Yeah, because you can you can see how you're blocking your microphone. I am your definitely phone. blocking my microphone. So change, edit sleep schedule and health. No kidding. Yeah, don't share my data with Apple. Don't share my. They data want to know everything Apple. about you. Yeah, so then you add schedules. Huh. So if I want to add a schedule, then I can also change. I can do that. Ah, wow. wow I've did. never seen that before. Okay, so there's like all kinds of cool things. So this yeah. is not an ad for for the iPhone or anything, <laughs> but it's. It's all there. You can do it. Wow. Yeah. And Very you interesting. Can, you can always see like how much you're going to get that night just there, like without doing the math. It's really cool. <laughs> so that's what fixed it. Fancy. Yes. Okay. But anyways, that's, that's, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because I'm up late reading and doing grad school homework. Okay. So this is an adjustment. Thank you. This is yeah. an adjustment as well. <laughs> yeah. No, no, we're going to, we're going to get this. Yeah. So that's it. That's just my snooze problem that has been solved, but you're right. I should do the St. Okay. Joseph or St. No. Jose Maria. Escriba. Oh my gosh. 
Well, Jose is Joseph, Joseph so it's okay. You're not like you're not wrong. He is Saint Joseph. That's exactly what happened. Not the not Saint the Joseph, Saint Joseph. Yeah. Yes, the yeah. heroic minute. Yeah, the heroic minute. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. It's a, it's a good spiritual challenge too. So it kind of gets you. I got to try to do something different. It truly is. Yeah. Yeah. What are we talking about? All I have is more catechesis stuff. <laughs> well, all right. So <laughs> more mind blowing things that are that are crazy. I, I like that that you're you're getting interested in this. So let's let's just define a couple of terms first. Yeah. Okay. Catechesis is the passing on the living transmission of the deposit of faith. So that okay. is given to us through scripture and tradition. Okay. And a catechist is a person who has been. Mm, it's actually a really beautiful ministry in the catechism. It says like so, someone who is there to give the proclamation of the kerygma to those who are unbelieving, to those who are baptized but have not responded to the faith, and to those who are baptized, have responded to the faith, but still need maturation to deepen their faith. And the kerygma? The kerygma is the first proclamation of the saving message of the gospel. So that's what I was reading last night. Okay. So we have... have catechesis, mm-hmm. the transmission of the faith, the mm-hmm. handing on of the faith. The catechist is the one who's handing on the faith, mm-hmm. particularly by means of the kerygma, that first proclamation, mm-hmm. right? All right. Then you have uh, the, the student in catechism, mm-hmm. right? So the child, uh, typically when, when we're talking about catechesis, we're talking about children receiving the faith yes. in the context of a catechism program, yes. right? Then you might have catechumens. right. Catechumen is an unbaptized adult who who has seeks. chosen to to come to the church and desires to become Catholic, mm-hmm. and so their journey as a catechumen is towards the sacraments of initiation. Mm-hmm. And so until they receive the sacraments of initiation, they are a catechumen. Mm-hmm. Right? Once they've received the sacraments of initiation, do you know what they're called? Oh, jeez. Uh, no, no, not a candidate. No. Nope. A candidate. I was a candidate. Is one who is preparing to receive the sacrament of confirmation. Okay. Right. So any any kid preparing for confirmation or any person who wants to come into the the full communion of the church and be confirmed is a is a candidate. Hmm. But after a after a catechumen has received the sacraments of initiation at the Easter vigil, they become a neophyte. So dope. Right? A neophyte <laughs> actually it, it's it's interesting because we use the term for lots of other things too. A neophyte is somebody who's new at this. Right. <laughs> They're new at the thing. So the this is this is a Jesus. new a new Catholic, somebody who's who's new at being Catholic. Yeah. How long are you a neophyte for? I don't know if there's actually a set term for for how long you, you are a neophyte. Because what I think comes next? Of, there's there's no just next Christian. step. Yeah, then it's just it's just living the Christian life. But the idea is that yeah. in that in that time after uh, after somebody has come into the church as a neophyte, they're being kind of supported in their growth in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually this post-baptismal period called the mystagogia. Mm. And that means the unlocking of the mysteries. Mm-hmm. So you'd have uh, a time after people have come into the church wherein they're invited to continue studying the faith, mm. continue growing in it, continue asking <clears throat> questions, and just kind of diving into their own experience of what did you feel when you were baptized mm-hmm. and how, how are you experiencing God now? Now that can vary from person to person and how much time they have to dedicate to mystagogia versus just that kind of growing in the, in the faith. Mm-hmm. But okay. yeah. Well, here's what I was interested in. It might actually lead to a discussion on Protestant Reformation. <laughs> oh my just because that's where my hang brain... On, hang on, hang on. Before we get, before we start going into <laughs> Protestant Reformation, which I'm not entirely equipped to talk about today... Uh, <laughs> it was a thought, so I wanted to bring up a thought okay. that I had right. based on my but, reading. But before we get there, even, <laughs> even, even before before we get there, uh, I want to go back to the the catechist. Okay. Okay, because there, there's an interesting thing that's that's happened recently, which is that the catechist, which has typically been a volunteer position, or it's really the first catechist is is really the parent mm-hmm. who's the first witness of the faith and the, and the first teacher. And this is an interesting thing that the Second Vatican Council talks about that that parents are the ones on whom the responsibility for educating their children in the Christian faith devolves. Mm-hmm. So that means that the the responsibility is placed first on the parents, and then the parents carry it out in cooperation with the church. And so the reason that the church has catechists, the reason that we have Catholic schools, is so that the responsibility that the parents have to educate their children in the faith is not one that they're left solo to do. 
Mm. There's there's then this support. You're part of the ecclesial faith. Yeah, we're like, we're here to walk yeah. with you. We're here to help you with. That's it. the whole point. Exactly. Yeah. So the the catechist has typically been a, a volunteer position, but there's also been uh, historically in the life of the church the office of catechist. Mm-hmm. So if you look at some of the the companion martyrs, often when when we have a a martyr. There's there's the martyr who's named, mm-hmm. and then their companions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we just celebrated uh, the feast of Saint Andrew Kim Taigon and Paul Chong Hasang, the martyrs of Korea. Mm-hmm. Numbered among them, you have uh, Andrew Kim Taigon, who is the first Korean priest ordained. Okay. Paul Chong Hasang, who was a seminarian, and then their companions. Numbered among their companions were catechists, mm-hmm. people who had the specific role of handing on the faith, passing on the faith, being those who who exercised the kerygma, mm-hmm. that handing on, the first handing on of the faith. Mm-hmm. So the catechist took on that that role. Then you'll see the catechist having a role in, in many other places, in, and especially in mission territory, mm-hmm. where there might not be the possibility of getting a priest to all the different communities. Mm-hmm. There's a catechist who's appointed to be the one who teaches the faith in the absence of, of the priest, mm. and who's really kind of charged with the proclamation of the gospel mm-hmm. because there's no priest uh, who's there to administer the sacraments. Yeah. And then when the priest comes, the priest can administer the sacraments immediately mm-hmm. to all the people that have been prepared by the catechist. So there are certain places where the office of catechist is is really not only about passing on the faith and the kerygma, the proclamation, it's also very much a, a, a communal effort. Mm-hmm. They are, they're in many ways, the animators of community life in, in a community, in a particular area. Mm-hmm. But recently, the, the Pope has established the ministry of catechist. So as, as an ecclesial ministry. Right. And this is a unique thing. This is, this is really interesting because most of our catechists are not instituted in the ministry of catechist. Mm-hmm. But we could do that. Now, the difference that happens there is that you, you have your volunteer catechists, right? So your volunteer catechists show up, they teach the kids, they do a great job, they're, they're generous with their time mm-hmm. and with their energy, right? They're offering themselves as as teachers. They might have their own children in, in the program, and they're they're going through all of this, and it's it's good. It's a it's a huge help. The office of catechist, someone who's been instituted in this particular ministry, then is charged by the church with this role. Mm-hmm. Their job is to proclaim the faith. Their job is the kerygma. Mm-hmm. It might not be a paid position. It probably could be, right? Mm-hmm. Theoretically. But if their role then is to do this and they, they have an, an official mandate from the church. How do you get that? Uh, you'd have to talk to the bishop okay. about something like that. Uh, but then there's there's a mandate from the church, which actually then draws that catechist into a, into a deeper, uh, I think the term, I think the correct term is to say a juridical mm. relationship with the church, mm. whereby by receiving the church's, like this ministry from the church, yeah. you now have a responsibility to exercise it. Yeah. And that also means your bishop can tell you to exercise it, yeah, or forbid you from exercising it. It's it's a really interesting thing, and I, I think it can I think it can pay dividends. I don't know that there are certain ministries that are, are kind of intended for a particular context, right? And that don't need to be exercised in and other places. Would that be separate from those who are like evangelists? Well, so there's no office of evangelist, right? Right. So the the to be an evangelist is something that you kind of take on. Mm-hmm. All of us can be evangelists, right? Mm-hmm. Every single person can share their faith, can can invite people to to church, mm-hmm. can witness to to what it means to believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. We can all do that. There are some people who begin to do that more in in a public way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some discussion of of maybe having. Uh, they don't call it evangelist, but maybe having a, an office, a ministry of preachers. Yeah, that's what I, I've been right? hearing. That. I think we talked about it once. I can't remember, but it, you, remember. that idea is, is an interesting one, too. Again, it would mean that that person who's received that particular office, it would not be a liturgical office, just as catechist is not a liturgical right. office. But they would be charged with some part of the mission of the church. Yes. Now, what that does is it also allows the church to say this person 
has our has the approval of the local bishop, for example, mm-hmm. to to go out and teach or to to preach the faith. This is a person who's been examined, whose whose doctrine is sound, mm-hmm. who's also capable of handing on the faith. In the same way that you'd say it to, to for a catechist, this is a person who's been educated. They've been taught. They know what they're handing on, and so they have the capacity to do so by virtue of their their education, their fidelity to the church and to the magisterium, their their genuine living out of the Christian faith, instead of it being sort of a, I'm not really sure who this person is. So there can be a, a good, healthy way in which yeah. that that's that's brought in. So uh, I don't know. Interesting. I'm interested in it. Yeah, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. That was that was that was me just kind of going because I, I just wanted to get that. Before out there. you get there, I need 10 minutes of your time to explain real something. quick, just real quick, <laughs> real yeah. quick. I was like, so when am I going to say the thing that I wanted to say? <laughs> All right. Now you can talk about well, the Protestant I'm Reformation. To, no, I'm not, well, so what was interesting was understanding what the kerygma is. And one thing that my professor said in in a lecture was that we can, there is going to be a temptation or some people do this is that they pit the kerygma against mass liturgy sacraments. So the kerygma is the proclamation of who Jesus is, why he came here, that we are made for a relationship with him and to go and repent and live a transformed life. Mm-hmm. That's the kerygma. And the kerygma what, is the What do you mean by a transformed life? Uh, receive this life of grace to share in the divine nature of, of Jesus so that you live in eternity with him forever. So what's included in transformation of life then? Repentance. Sacrament. Repentance from? Repentance from sin, a turning back from sin, uh, growing in virtue, uh, per- pursuing holiness. The whole point is to to become holy. And I'm, I'm defining a lot of terms today, but I just No, it's fine. It's, well, it this, needs this definition. One, this one's important. This no, it's it's really like good. Because a, tr- a transformed life, that's actually the beauty of of the conversion stories that you hear. So St. Paul, yes. right? When when we read about St. Paul, the the great conversion of St. Paul was that not only that that he was stopped dead in his tracks, but that he stopped trying to kill people. It's a really important thing. We like that. <laughs> we can often overlook it, but no more murder. In fact, that was one of the things that that got back to the Christian communities. The one who was formerly persecuting us, or read differently, the one who was trying to kill us, mm-hmm. now is not trying to kill us. It's a good thing. <laughs> oh, well, I, I yeah, that, thank you. I think thank we you can that. welcome him yeah, back. Exactly. You that's, know, oh, that that's a good forgiveness thing. might have to take some time, but I'll, I'll yeah. welcome him into the fold. Right. Uh, and it's interesting is um, the catechism and different church documents talk about how the kerygma is permeates all church activity. So every effort that the church does, whether it's liturgy or evangelization, the sacraments, all of it is charismatic. And so through all of it, you have this narrative of God saving his people and wanting to be with his people. And oh, I, I just had a, a thought there. How is charismatic different from charismatic? I don't know. I've never. You don't I, have to. Okay. I, no, I haven't. I haven't thought this through. It just. It just. It just hit me. Like, all right. So everything has to be charismatic. All catechesis has to be. Charismatic. Yes, exactly. Everything. So no matter. No matter what you're doing, whether you are, you know, you could be in, in, you're saying your homily at mass. You can give a charismatic message, a reminder of God's love for His people, mm-hmm. and a reminder to be in relationship with Him. Uh, it, it could be in catechesis, it could be in informal ways and in very formal ways, but what's always at the heart of the gospel is the kerygma, is Jesus himself constantly offering this invitation. Now, what's interesting is you don't just simply say the kerygma once. It is the first proclamation, but it doesn't mean that you say it once and you're done. Right. It's something that has to be repeated again and again and again. Uh, so how many times did someone have to tell me, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you? Mm. I didn't understand that for the first couple years. I would hear it, but it hadn't taken root in my heart. Right. Because the kerygma also assumes that the person has already received uh, and consented, a cons- consented to a relationship with God. And so there's a fertile ground for that deepening of that. So when someone receives the kerygma, they're receiving the proclamation, they're receiving essentially a gospel presentation, and it requires a response. Do you respond to this faith? Right. You know, are you saying yes to this relationship? If so, then here's how you do it. You get baptized, you repent. You see this in Acts 2 when Peter, uh, when Paul gets up and he's 
telling all of Israel, no, we're not actually drunk. We're just really filled with the Spirit. And here is why we have been witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Here's how it changed my life. And this is the invitation that we're making to you. And so men were cut to the heart. They received it. So what he was doing was he was proclaiming uh, uh, the message of the charisma to them, and it initiated a response to them. And so then what? 3,000 were baptized and their sins were forgiven. Uh, and we need, to, I found it as a challenge is, well, okay, we can't assume that people have responded to faith. And that's where we go wrong. Uh, because catechesis is just simply a maturation of that initial proclamation. It's a deepening of what you've received. That's what catechesis is. And so at the same time that it's completely charismatic, it's also a deepening of that first proclamation that you had. And it just made me, and it, it was like, wow, it's so interesting. And then I started thinking of how Protestant churches, oh, you're doing the extra stuff, the sacraments, like that's all extra. You just talk about Jesus. Just talk about God's love. And having that understanding now, I'm like, wait, no, like this, the sacraments are God's love. The liturgy right. is God's. It's all woven in together. It's not, they're not against each other. Right. They're not. And so, but is that what happened? Is that where like, we've, we like, is that, I don't know. I don't know completely where the Protestant Reformation, I have no, ideas so that... based on like whatever I learned in history, but, but it just made me think about, because that's something that I'll hear from Protestants is that Catholics do too much. And they, they feel like we're taking it away from, we're taking away from Jesus, like, but, but we're not, this is actually the means by which we get to deepen our relationship with Jesus. Right. So, so that was my thought last night. The sacraments are, you're absolutely right. Very charismatic mm -hmm. in that in the sacraments, the the truth of God's closeness to his people is proclaimed again, again in the again. sacraments. We are invited in an active way to enter into the relationship with God that the charisma also invites us to enter into. Mm -hmm. So there, there's the just proclaiming, just talking about the gospel. That by itself, that's charismatic. Mm -hmm. But then the sacraments in their own way are charismatic. But you have to under, you have to see it. You have to, first of all, you have to know what charismatic is, mm -hmm. what charisma is. When you, when you know that this is that proclamation of the faith, that invitation into a relationship with Christ, then you start to see more clearly that the sacraments do that. Mm -hmm. Communion is an easy one to see. We're yeah. invited to receive the Eucharist, to receive Jesus. We believe that it's really Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And if we're invited to receive Jesus, then that means we're being invited into a relationship with him, mm -hmm. right? Nothing but a relationship. Do you know where else I see this in the Mass, though? is when you're doing the Eucharistic prayer, your salvation history is being repeated to you before you receive. Sure. And I was, and so that hit me a couple years ago where I was listening a little bit more. I mean, not that I don't, but you know, you pick up the mass. <laughs> I was, is, I was the mass listening is, for the first time ever. No, the mass is to be uncovered. And so you're sure. still learning right. every part of your, you know, you're never done learning about the mass. And it struck me, wow, I am, before I received the Eucharist, I am being communicated why I'm receiving the Eucharist. It's telling my story again to me. Right. That's why the, the liturgy of the word is so important mm -hmm. because you're proclaiming the scriptures. And in fact, the, the, the amount of scripture that we read, especially in the years post Vatican II is, is very positive. We're reading a lot, a lot more scripture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we can have a lot of discussions about whether or not the the translation that we use is really moving and good. It's not. <laughs> it, it is. I think. I think many of those translations of of the scriptures are somewhat deficient. Mm -hmm. And I think that the editing. I had. Why a whole, don't we just go to the RSV? I hold. I had a whole rant about this in my homily a few weeks ago when we talked about the the letter to Philemon, <laughs> or Philemon, however you want to say it, uh, because it's inexcusable to me that they've edited the most important verse out of the entire letter. It's just insane. They edit out, he was once useless to you, but he has become useful to me. <laughs> For no reason, they cut that out. And it's like the most important thing that you can possibly say about Philemon. Yeah. That, that Onesimus, the slave whose name means useful, was useless, and now he's become useful again by baptism. It's like, That's horrible. How, do, how do you just decide we're not going to talk about that? We're not going to put it in there. This it's a very short letter, but they do that all the time. There are so yeah. many things where, where like the, the tougher teaching gets cut out, drives me nuts. But in, in any case, we, we are still proclaiming a mm -hmm. great deal of scripture. Yeah. Right. That's the story. That's the story of our salvation. That's what scripture contains. 
And so as we hear the story again and hopefully have it explained well to us, then we come to into the, the, the offertory where we're offering the gifts mm-hmm. and bringing ourselves back to the Lord, offering ourselves again to the Lord. And then the preface, that's after the, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and, and just. just. Okay. Right? <laughs> that, that, that part that follows that is called the preface right mm. before the Holy Holy. And the preface is meant to kind of encapsulate in just a few words the mystery that we're about to celebrate. So it it mm. recapitulates something of... Jesus's cross and resurrection. It reminds us of the saving work of God through the saints, through the apostles, through the martyrs, through mm-hmm. the religious, who, whoever it is, how, mm-hmm. however it, it's it's being phrased. It's reminding us of the glory of what God has done for his creation. Mm-hmm. Right, And so that draws us deeper into the mystery that begins as we celebrate the Eucharistic prayers. We dive into the, into the, the canon of the Mass. Mm-hmm. Then, especially if you're using the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, what you're going to find is then there's those litanies of saints. Mm-hmm. And in those litanies of saints, what you're doing is you're hearing the names of the apostles, mm-hmm. the early martyrs of the church, the father, some of the fathers, some of the, those early uh, early Christians who were, who were venerated in Rome. Mm. Now, it's first to remind us that there's real people who believed, real people who lived out the faith. And so as we're celebrating these mysteries, we're celebrating it in the context of a, a spiritual union with all those great saints who have gone before us. Mm-hmm. And then the, the litany also includes, and all your saints, mm. all those who have gone. So we're in particular remembering these saints yeah. and why, why the saints of the church of Rome, because it was once the gospel had reached Rome and Peter was there, mm-hmm. then it was from Rome that the proclamation continued to go out. And so it was the Roman celebration of the Christian faith mm. that traveled the most because the Roman Empire covered was, so much of the world, right? Yeah, genius, God. You <laughs> so, used the most powerful empire to spread Christianity. It's, it's like you planned it. As, as that expression of, of worship, as that expression of faith was, was carried out, when the church at Rome venerated her own martyrs, these are the martyrs who, on, on whose shoulders we stand, then th- that practice was picked up around the world mm. in the other places. So they would do what Rome did. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because they had the same devotion, but because this is this is where we come from. Right. There's mm. there's a powerful tie there. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's hard to to proclaim that all the time. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make that clear at every single mass, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, you'd be basically giving the same homily every week, no matter what, <laughs> and then adding a new thing. And so it was more just like, all right, here's the basic stuff. Now remember this this new thing, and then you you, you turn it off. Mm. That's actually the reason that that we have to remind ourselves to listen during Mass, because the words can become so routine, mm-hmm. so familiar, that we forget to listen and pay attention to them when we, we end up just kind of leaving them off to the side. But when you have that sense of, oh, yeah, there's something new for me to discover here, then you're going to start noticing these, mm-hmm. these little things. Mm-hmm. So mass can be very charismatic. That's That's why there's a homily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's also why we're, we're meant to be drawn into it. Right. right. If the mass can be charismatic, then the other sacraments can also be charismatic. Confession. Mm-hmm. It's our opportunity to recognize our own sin, which is what Jesus tells us to do in the gospel. Right. And then it's our opportunity to encounter the living mercy of God mm-hmm. that's poured out in abundance. And, and what is the charisma but reminding us of the living mercy of God poured out in abundance for us? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. That's that's very true. Yeah. Here's what I found also interesting. Okay. This is about you as oh, a priest. Me as a priest. Yes. Okay. You and your ministerial I'm priesthood brothers. Uh, no, no, My don't priest be. Bros. Your priest bros. Uh, I thought this was very interesting. I know, obviously, the priesthood is meant to serve the lady, right? Or like the people of God to feed the people of God. Right. So, here's here's what I learned, and I thought this was really interesting: is that the priest by word sacrament and governance that's how they pass on the faith Mm -hmm. and for the lady as they receive the word they receive the sacraments and they receive the governance are called to then go out by wit by witnessing daily sacrifice um and i just totally forgot the last one oh i'm so upset Is that what it is? No. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what you're what you're referencing. Oh no, it, in, it's in the it's the it's the but... role of, it's the role of the lady. Because yeah. how do you receive you re, you 
you feed us through words, sacrament, and government right. governance, right? right? So we need we need that authority. We need to know that we can't be heretical and all these things. So tell us what to do. We need the sacraments because the sacraments strengthen us to participate in the life of Jesus, to go out and to do the work. And the word, uh, you know, that like receiving the scriptures, receiving, you know, Jesus himself um, in all these ways, it's to strengthen the church to actually go out the lady to go out and do evangelization. That's what I found interesting in this class was that the lady are called to go out to, to do the work of evangelization Sure. by witnessing through daily sacrifice. And you know what? We're going to add that third one. I think it is prayer, but I'm going to have to look that up because I totally just forgot. Um, so I, I thought, And this brought me to think about a point about what you mentioned before, how like people think that priests are the ones who have to do everything. Yeah. And you call that. But we don't. But we, but you don't. And and so you see here, it's like, wow, no, no, no. We are the ones who are called to go out. Yeah. The priests are here. Um, or I mean, um, what are your thoughts on that? Because that just sunk in a little bit more deeply, like the role of the lady um, and how we we are not separate separated from what your call is um we we all have the same call to evangelize and to be holy um but how we are going to do it differently in how many of us are actually witnesses or do that daily sacrifice and i sure. understand like you know the heroic minute is a daily sacrifice that i probably could institute way to bring in the heroic life. minute back in i did oh. yes Great job, Paula. <laughs> Offering my sufferings. I'm you know, so re- proud of you for re- bringing that back. Really going back out and, and yeah. doing all that. So it just it just made me think collectively, this is the ecclesial faith. This is this is how we all come together. And each part of the body, it's doing its job. Right. So it's this not is... just, oh, the priest has to do this, the priest has to do that, which is the attitude that many have. Correct. You're describing... Uh, not the attitude that many people have, but what you're, what you're describing as what's supposed to happen is very much the, the vision presented to us in Lumen Gentium. That's what it is. The dogmatic constitution on the church. Yeah. Lumen Gentium talks about the different roles in the, in the life of the church, but in talking about the different roles in the life of the church, so first it says the church is hierarchical. Mm-hmm. The, the way that the church functions is in a hierarchical way. So the pope, the bishops, the priests, and the laity in a hierarchy. Right. Now, this isn't to the hierarchy is not based on personal dignity, right? Hierarchy is not based on personal dignity. Did you find it? Yeah, it's not. It's serve. <laughs> Service. Okay. Well, that works. Yeah, it definitely uh, works. That works too. Like perfect. Yeah, that's what it is. The hierarchy doesn't exist because you know I, as as part of the hierarchy, as a priest, as an mm-hmm. ordained minister, uh, I, I am not that because I have somehow greater dignity than somebody else. Mm-hmm. I've been called into this particular role. Mm-hmm. So the hierarchical structure of the church provides us with a sense of definite roles and definite purposes in life. Yes. So there are certain things that are, are my job to do and not yours. But then at the same time that the church says that very clearly, we talk about the laity, we talk about the universal call to holiness, we talk about the religious life, that these these other ways of living, these other aspects of our lives are meant to be in cooperation. Mm-hmm. And so the, the hierarchy cooperates with the laity by serving them, by offering them the sacraments, by proclaiming the word to them, and the laity in return, as they receive it, as they receive that service, as they receive that ministry, cooperate with the work of the mm-hmm. hierarchy so that the church can can function well. Now, there are certain times when certain responsibilities can be shared. Some responsibilities I can I can share with the, the lay people who work it. That's why my entire staff is a lay staff. <laughs> right? Like yes, literally. I work with lay people all day long, every day. <laughs> why? Because I can't take care of every single responsibility. Right. It's not possible. That, so one of my responsibilities is governance. Mm-hmm. Right. Making sure that the parish is, is running well and that the things that are necessary for the governance of the parish are done. The governance of the parish includes things like upkeep of buildings and grounds. Mm-hmm. It includes calling in a contractor to take care of this kind of work or that kind of work. Well, if I have to deal with calling every single vendor and keeping track of all of the books and making sure that I keep all the pay stubs and receipts and all this other stuff, 
I would never have any time for any of the other stuff that I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so a very legitimate sharing of those responsibilities can happen where that's why we have a business manager. That's why we have Mm -hmm. uh, an office administrator to take care of all of those things so that I don't have to worry about it. It's still my job to make sure that they are there though, Mm -hmm. that they're doing it. They're sharing in that, in that part of my role. Mm -hmm. You as director of evangelization for the parish, you go out and you're, you're doing these things, but it's you're sharing in my responsibility to evangelize, to mm-hmm. share to share the gospel. But by having somebody who's not me doing it, it provides people with another voice, mm-hmm. it provides people with another perspective. It also provides us with two voices instead of one. Mm. And so then the message of the kerygma, that proclamation, is amplified. Mm-hmm. In that case, then we're cooperating. Yeah, we're working together. There are certain things, though, that need to be that simply need to be done. Mm-hmm. And so it's r- the responsibility. In, in when we talk about governance, that there are certain things. This is what we do. Yeah, and that's why I'm I am bound in my own governance by the law. The law of the church tells me what I can and cannot do. Sometimes people get mad at me because I can't do something, but I can't do it not because I don't want to do it, mm-hmm. but because either the, the law doesn't permit it or because when I asked for permission, it wasn't granted. Mm. I'm a man under authority. Mm-hmm. And if the if permission isn't granted for something or if it's not possible to do it, this happens a lot. People get upset about schedules. Right? Well, I, I want to do this on this day. I'm, I'm sorry, that can't happen on that day because we don't have, we don't have space that day. But I, I needed to be on that day. <laughs> but there's no space. <laughs> Everything else is already taken. All, all the all the rooms that we have, every, every chair that we have, it's the we don't have space to do the thing that, that you want to do on that day. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sorry, I don't have that room available. Or I don't have have space in this in this group for that. But but I want it that day. I don't know how to explain to people the concept of like a line or first come first serve. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to explain that finite space exists. You didn't know that and you were supposed to like serve every well, people's it's, whim. It's it's difficult because I want to. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely want to, but if they won't understand that sometimes I cannot do every single thing that they want, that mm-hmm. can be difficult. Saint Paul says that he became all things to all people, and I don't really know how he did it. I'm I I still sit there and I think. Very often, this is this is maybe the challenge for priests that we, we think we have to be all things to all people, mm. and in a very real way, we do. Mm. We have to be ready to to be with people in their every moment, in mm-hmm. their in their suffering, in their joy. We have to be ready to be with them in their their confusion and to meet them in all of that, so that we can help them through it, so that we can grieve with them, so that we can laugh with them, so that we can educate them, so that we can give them advice, so that we can even sometimes take authority and tell them this is what has to happen, yeah. and that's it. But to be all things to all people, in the end, we're limited by our humanity, right? There's only so much I can do. There's only so many different ways that I can be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. But going back to what you're describing, because I think that's that's really the most important thing. When we have the sense of of the cooperation of the different states in life, the different vocations, yeah. then we start to understand what we're really supposed to be. And then the church is actually able to function at its best. Yes. Russell Shaw has a book. Uh, that came out years and years ago. Who is Russell Shaw? Russell Shaw is, uh, I think he's still alive. I don't, he probably doesn't listen to this podcast. But, Never heard this name uh, before. He was a, a, a Catholic journalist for, for many years. Okay. Um, and one of the things that, that he wrote this, this very short book called Ministry or Apostolate, What Should the Laity Be Doing? Hmm. And he wrote it at a time when almost everything that happened at your parish was called a ministry. So you had donut ministry, you had uh, <laughs> ladies ministry, men's ministry, you had the prayer shawl ministry, you had the uh, mm. the children's ministry. Everything was a ministry, 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 ministry. Mm. There's nothing wrong with the word ministry. Mm-hmm. It's a good word. It's an important word. But he made the distinction in that book that ministry applies primarily to the church. Right. Those who are already Catholic. So ministry is to those who already believe. We minister to the believing community. That makes sense. Who are the sacraments administered to? To the believing community. To the believing community or to the one who's coming into the believing community. Right. Right. So Hmm. ministry implies that it's directed towards those who already have faith, who already share in our community. And he says, this is very good. 
But who is supposed to be doing ministry? Who is supposed to minister to the believers? First and foremost, that's the priests. Mm-hmm. Right? The hierarchy has the responsibility, the care of souls, yeah. and they are responsible first and foremost to minister to the needs of the community. Then those those ministerial needs can be shared. Right. So that's why we have catechists, deacons. That's why we have volunteers who help us to run different things and, right. and to take care of different things so that this ministry can be furthered. Mm-hmm. But not everything is actually a ministry. Mm. And when we call everything a ministry, we lose sight of what ministry actually is. But you also, you see the temptation, you also lose sight of the charisma in all of this, because now you start just doing stuff. And where are you proclaiming Jesus? Right. So then he says, apostolate, on the other hand. and It's mission-oriented. It's mission-oriented, and it's the language of the Second Vatican Council. Mm. Because the council says that the laity share in the apostolate. Mm. They share in the apostolate to go out and proclaim... The apostolate, so the word apostle, mm-hmm. you have the, uh, Fulton Sheen makes the distinction, we've talked about it on the, on the show before, that the disciple is the one who follows the master, mm-hmm. but the apostle is the one whom the master sends out. That's cool. I totally forgot. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up again. So, <laughs> I have a memory of a goldfish. The 12 are, are the apostles. They're also disciples. But the, the the 12 apostles are then sent out on mission. Mm-hmm. And that's why we talk about the successors of the apostles, the bishops, mm-hmm. and those who share in their ministry, the priests, who are sent out to proclaim the gospel. Mm-hmm. So there is a missioning. Yeah. We're being sent out to do that. But then apostolate, apostolate means going out and sharing the good news. And that's the thing that the laity are called to in a particular way especially by the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. And what Russell Shaw is writing about is basically that we've gotten it wrong. We focused way too much on lay ministry. Yes. And we've forgotten to focus on lay apostolate. So the idea of of involving more lay people in the ministerial activity of the church is good. Right. Because we need more lay people who can do that stuff. And that's, it's true. But even there, lay ministry has limits and lay ministry should always be one of the smaller things because it's a sharing in the overall ministry of the whole church. Yeah. But apostolate, why is it that so many people don't feel like they know how to share their faith? Because we've never talked to them about apostolate. Right. We've never, we, in, in all of the ministry that we do, we haven't done well enough to teach people how to go out. So that's why any effort, uh, any kind of school of evangelization, anything like uh, our small groups that that we're working to create those intentional communities, mm-hmm. uh, any anything where where people have the opportunity to to learn something about their faith, with the intention of being equipped to share it, right. not just apologetically, not just the the apologetics approach. Apologetics, uh, if you don't know what apologetics is, apologetics is the the study of the faith so that you can answer objections to the faith. Mm-hmm. It's not just for the sake of going out and arguing, um, like although, you did once. Yeah, once upon a time, I was all about <laughs> apologetics, and that was that was my whole thing. I just wanted to argue the faith and realize that sometimes I need to evangelize too, and that's yeah. actually way more effective. So then apostolate is supposed to be the the lay response to the kerygma, right. to their sharing in the kerygma, so that they can go out and become proclaimers of that same kerygma, that same good news. That's awesome. Yeah. I just saw like, my whole job totally differently now. It's, it, well, it's an yeah. apostolate. like. I, well, and that's the thing. Some, sometimes the line between apostolate and ministry is blurry. Yes. Because just because it's apostolate doesn't mean that you don't go to the people who already believe. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is very much going to the people who already believe and strengthening them and helping mm-hmm. them to grow. But there's there's a sense of it's also outward oriented. Right. Apostolate takes us outside of the community and lets us see how we can bring the faith and bring the light of Christ, bring the mercy of God to the world mm-hmm. that needs it. Yeah. Ministry rebuilds those who are carrying out the apostolate. Mm-hmm. I need to be ministered to. Mm-hmm. That's that's also always a big question that comes up. Who ministers to the ministers? I know I'm going on retreat in three weeks. And yeah. I'm so excited. I'll tell you what. <laughs> if you ever if you ever participate in a retreat that's geared towards the people who uh, who are in ministry somehow, who are active in ministry, if you go like when I whenever I've gone on a priest retreat specifically geared towards priests. I'm blown away by the people who are ministering to priests mm. because I think we're a very difficult group to minister to. <laughs> I think, I think we're you guys difficult. are a bunch of curmudgeons. Well, we're curmudgeons, but like we also are so used to doing things in ministry that we think, ah, I know what I'm doing. I don't, I don't really need anything. Mm-hmm. And so the people who minister to priests 
kind of have to crack through that first barrier, which mm. is, you know, we already know everything. Mm-hmm. And I feel for them because at least in my case, I know that I can be a pain in the neck, <laughs> man, but they break through it and they break through it in really well, powerful that is ways. A, that is a charism that they have. It, it is. Cause yeah. they wouldn't be All right. able to do it. So coming back to charismatic and charismatic, <laughs> right? charismatic, it means whatever's happening contains the proclamation of the gospel. In some way, the proclamation of the gospel is present there. Charismatic, hmm. in this case, when we're using it in the context of, of speaking about the life of the church, we're talking about the charisms of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit that are given to be able to for do that particular proclamation. purpose. Yeah. So are we going to call this now char- charismatic, charismatic? I'm a charismatic, <laughs> charismatic. Ooh, that could be fun. Oh, that's such a... Be a charismatic, charismatic. Oh, that's such a big word. Yeah. Big phrase. But, charismatic, charismatic. So the Same charisms of the Holy Spirit, the, the gifts inspired in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to have a particular charism, a particular way of living out those gifts, a particular way of doing ministry or apostolate, mm-hmm. different people have different charisms. Mm-hmm. There are some charisms that come from office. And so an ordained minister has certain charisms okay. that are, are given by office. But then like a religious sister. A, reli- a religious sister, no, the, no. There's, there's the charism that oh, the a community? religious community has, but ordination itself, holy orders, oh. the sacrament oh, of holy yes, orders, yes. confers certain charisms. Okay. So I have the charism, for example, of, of being able to celebrate the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, in seminary, we even talked about celibacy as a charism. Mm. So in, in other words, it's not just something that I'm deciding I'm going to do, but I actually, if I'm going to live out receive, celibacy, yeah. I have to have received the charism of celibacy, yeah. the gift of the spirit to live in this way. That makes sense. It's very, it's a very powerful idea. Wow. There are charisms that are given to people where they, they have the ability to, uh, to do something, mm-hmm. right? To, to speak in an effective way. So some people have the gift for proclamation. Mm-hmm. Some people have the gift for administration. So St. Paul writes about when mm-hmm. he, when he writes about the different gifts. Mm-hmm. And then you have the charism that a religious community takes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, an example of a, of a religious community's charism might be uh, to make the sacred heart of Jesus known, loved, and adored throughout the world. Uh, it might be to defend and protect and speak for the dignity of all human life from conception to natural death. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's different charisms to, to educate the poor, to right. serve the poorest of the poor, whatever it might be. Those different charisms, that's kind of the broad umbrella that will govern what they do. Right. It's the broad umbrella that will govern what apostolates they engage in. Mm-hmm. And so that apostolic activity to go out and do something depends on what the charism is. Mm. And so not all sisters do the same thing. Mm. You see different mm-hmm. religious sisters and some are, are on the street working with the poorest of the poor. Yeah. Some are in classrooms. It's all because, receive different gifts. Right, because those order. different gifts need to... Yeah. need to function. The same thing happens though, I think with, with priests. And it, this is an important thing for when we're talking about diocesan priesthood that we have to understand because diocesan priests have the charism of serving the church mm-hmm. in a particular area. Our charism is to serve the needs of the church and build up the church here in my charism as a, a priest of the diocese of Bridgeport mm-hmm. to serve the church, build up the church, serve the needs of the, of the people of God here in Fairfield County. Mm-hmm. Right. But not all priests receive that charism in an identical way. So, for example, there there are some priests who have that charism to serve th- those needs, but who don't have the charism of uh, being a pastor, mm. right? And who probably shouldn't be pastors. That's that's a wise thing to to say. Right? Sometimes that's the that's the reality. Yeah. Um, so we all have these different charisms. So understanding what your charism is is going to determine how you engage in charisma. You know, this is really good. It's a good plug because on April twentieth, we're literally going to have someone help people know their spiritual gifts. April 20th, come learn about your <laughs> spiritual gifts at St. Pius and, the 10th Parish. Yeah, it'll be an inventory on, well, what am I supposed to do? The spiritual gifts inventory. Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's way in advance. That's that's good. We can yes. mark your calendars, <laughs> folks, April 20th. It's, it's going to be great. I, th- I think that's an important thing, though, mm-hmm. that the way in which we proclaim, so okay. to, to share in the charisma depends on the charism that we have. Yeah. What is the way in which God wants me to do this? Because not everyone is going to do it the same way. We talked about this. Mm-hmm. We talked about this before when, when we look at the, the way that some people don't think they have a story. Yeah. 
you know, if, if my story doesn't look like St. Paul yeah. getting knocked off the horse, stopped mm-hmm. dead in his tracks, if it doesn't look like that, then do I really have any story to share? Do I mm-hmm. have anything that I can offer? And of course the answer is yes. Yes. You yes, you do. You, do, you, you very you do. much have something to offer, yeah. but we have to understand it in that, in that context of what I offer is not going to be identical to what you offer. Yes. So my ability to proclaim the gospel looks different than your ability to proclaim the gospel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to proclaim the gospel. Mm-hmm. It means that your ability to proclaim the gospel is yours mm-hmm. and not mine. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Well, I had another thought, but we are running out of time. Do it. Just, just do it real quick. <laughs> real quick. Come on. Uh, there's just so much here where... This is why we need, I just want the church to be what it's supposed to be. Like that, that, that's just literally my thought. That's just it. If we all become who we were created to be, to quote St. Catherine of Siena, we would set the world on fire. And we should have confidence that we are called into this because Jesus himself said it. Right. We share in his threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. So it's not crazy for me to think or anyone else to think, gosh, am I really made for this? Am I really like called to do this? Yeah. Yeah, you are. He lets you share in his priesthood, in his prophetic office, and in his kingly office, each of us in different ways. And so... Have you read Lumen Gentium all the way through? Because you're just you're just speaking Lumen Gentium here, and it's great. I haven't read that yet. <gasps> I can't wait for you to read Lumen Gentium. He's quoted a couple things, but he, we've been focused on like I'm the, telling you, man, the directory. The reason the reason that we we haven't figured out what Vatican II was all about is because people have been ignoring Lumen Gentium. Mm. If we understood Lumen Gentium, we would understand the whole council, and and it would give us the framework in through which to interpret everything. It's it is the hermeneutical key. Mm-hmm. to the council. Mm-hmm. Read Lumen Gentium and you'll understand everything else. And if we had actually read Lumen Gentium, we wouldn't have made some of the stupid mistakes that we've made as a church <laughs> in the years following the council. Mm. If we actually paid attention, we, we wouldn't be doing some of the dumb things that we're still doing that we need to stop doing. Yeah. We don't have time to go into what those dumb things are. No, but, we don't, but we we can have, we have an uh, idea. What Lumen Gentium gives us though is so, like the, the universal call to holy. So this is the thing. Lumen Gentium is at the heart of the heart of the whole council. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it to be the central document of the entire council. Mm-hmm. Everything else kind of floats around it. At the heart of Lumen Gentium is the universal call to holiness. Yeah. So if we're all called to be holy, that's at the heart of what Vatican II is really all about. Mm-hmm. Be holy. Mm-hmm. Be a saint. But what do we hear about Vatican II instead? Changed everything. Yeah, it's so sad. It's, it, but that's not what it did. Yeah. It it was that reminder, so charismatic reminder, mm-hmm. right? Again, proclaiming the truth that you have been called by virtue of your dignity, by virtue of your baptism, you've been called to holiness. Yes. And you have the capacity for it. Yes. You can be a saint. Yes. Read Lumen Gentium. <laughs> have confidence in oh, Jesus. He's already gone before you and is victorious. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's it. All right. Hey, thanks, Paula. <laughs> thanks, Padre. What are we going to talk about next week? I don't know. We'll get there. Uh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to Roar Like the Lamb. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. And I'm Paola Peña. God bless you.